1: Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Christina Millar, one of the hosts of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Josh Syme about his new book, Bandage, Sword, and Hustle: Ambulance Crews on the Front of Urban Suffering, published in 2020 by the University of California Press. Josh is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Southern California. He's broadly interested in the governance of poverty and suffering. And this has led him to the sociology of medicine, punishment, and more. Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I first want to say that Bandage, Sword, and Hustle was one of my favorite monographs that I've ever read um, since studying sociology. So I couldn't put the book down. I really liked how you approached the study and your description of your methods throughout the book. And your writing about your experience as an EMT made the entire study more interesting to read because of your unique perspective as a sociologist on the front lines.
2: Well, thank you so much.
1: Yeah, you're very welcome. So I wonder if you'd begin the interview by first just saying a few words about yourself and your background.
2: Sure. Yeah, I'm an assistant professor in the Sociology Department at USC. I've been there, I guess this is ending my second year uh, on the tenure track. Before that, I was a PhD student at the University of California, Berkeley. Before that, I was... uh, Master's student in the sociology department at Portland State University, and then before that, as an undergrad, I was at uh, Gonzaga University in Spokane, Washington. Although to be honest, I spent most of my time as an undergrad in uh, community colleges. So I was a community college student for for three years, and then transferred to Gonzaga, and kind of just been doing sociology for uh, you know a little bit over a decade now. Considering that I, I first took my first sociology class as a community college student. In, Uh, early 2006.
1: So what led you to become a sociologist?
2: Yeah, well, you know, as uh, as a community college student, um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I uh, was a high school dropout. I uh, was taking kind of remedial classes that didn't really encounter college credit. And then at some point I was able to take college credit level classes and I didn't really know what I was interested in. I was doing well in, in my college level English classes and things like that. But then I took a geography class and I failed that. And I took a political science class and I failed that. I just wasn't doing that well in it. And uh, I was on like a like a financial aid probation. And, you know, people told me I needed to get my shit together. And so I took sociology. And I think it was just kind of perfect timing for me. I was really motivated not to lose my financial aid and, and not to get kind of kicked out of school, it seemed like, and uh, I just happened to be really motivated at the same time where I took a class with an instructor who was really passionate about the topic she was teaching, and that topic just happened to be sociology, but she was just so captivating and uh, so motivating, you when know, I came into the office hours and I was basically just, I think, just wanted to figure out some way that I could do what you do. Or at some time in the future, and that is when I first heard about PhDs in, in sociology, and she told me about getting a PhD. I didn't really know what that meant, did a lot of Googling, and uh, I haven't really stopped since, and now I'm a professor Big USC.
1: Nice. I always appreciate when people talk about their stories, like pretty candidly, because so many times I hear students say, oh, I'm not like smart enough to get a PhD, or I have this in my history, um, and we all have something. Um, that we've been through that maybe isn't, doesn't fit the like, ideal, um, that we think of, uh, the, the road to being a professor. So I appreciate yeah. when people talk about their stories. Um, yeah, me too. Yeah. So how did you first come to, um, what inspired you to write this book and how did you begin this project?
2: Yeah. So, you know, I didn't go to grad school thinking I was going to study ambulances. I had never stepped foot into an ambulance until I did this project, uh, Basically, before I was studying medical sociology, before I was uh, even interested in looking into ambulances, I was doing research on punishment, incarceration, and prisoner release type issues. And so I was doing interviews and observations with soon-to-be-released prisoners uh, in a prison in Oregon. I was um, observing a series of kind of state-run reentry programs behind bars, and then I was following up with some of these guys who I met in prison once they were released. And it was during these follow-up conversations uh, with one of these guys who I met in prison and I followed up with him and he was at his transitional housing unit uh, a couple of months after he was released from the prison, you know, kind of asking him how things were going, if he liked his transitional housing unit. Um, And he was very candid. He said he didn't like the unit and he said he, he didn't like his living situation at all. He said that, you know, residents were always fighting with each other, people were stealing from one another. Um, at some point, he was kind of like, you know, "This is almost as bad as being in prison." And you know, seemingly to provide evidence to me about like how terrible it was to live there, he told me that the ambulance crew was always there. So, like a couple times a week, ambulances were kind of you know, showing up to the building. Crews were running upstairs, responding to overdoses, responding to fights, and things like that. And you know, I think a few nights before this conversation, I had with them, you know, somebody had overdosed and, and died or at least that was the rumor that he had heard. So the ambulance crew was always there. I thought that was really interesting. Right? I thought the ambulance was interesting On a, before that conversation. There was a number of reasons why I thought it could be a, a promising institution to study sociologically, but it was really that conversation that really suggested to me this could be an interesting case study to look at sociologically. And the ambulance just kind of stuck out to me after that conversation. And I just, you know, just noticed it more when I was driving you know, in my everyday life, and then I just started to just notice it more as a grad student. When I was reading and prepping for like my urban sociology exam. So, you, know, you can find the ambulance mentioned in Elijah Anderson's Third Street, Nick Sidewalk, you know, Pat Desmond's for Forrest Stewart's book, some uh, of the work by Miracle McCoy. Now, of course, you would, you know, be forgiven if you have no memory of the ambulance being in those books, even if you read those books. It's you know, the ambulance is always like kind of cast as a background prop or maybe ambulance was going to cast as extras in, in somebody else's drama. But that told me that the ambulance could be an interesting institution. If it was popping up in all of these urban ethnographies, that this could be an interesting site to study. And so then at that point, I'm kind of turning to the literature uh, of sociologists who were actually looking at ambulances. And there's some of that literature out there. I wouldn't say it's, um, you know, it, it's not like a ton of research of people who study ambulances. It's kind of picked up bit more recently, but the studies that I was looking at were like from the 80s and and 90s and they were really looking at uh, like work culture and studying the kind of internal dynamics of the occupation of being an EMT or or being a paramedic. It was all really interesting and I I use that work a lot and draw on it in many ways, but a lot of that research didn't tell me how this institution was helping to manage oppressed and marginalized populations and the suffering they tend to bear. So, with all of that kind of in my mind, that suggested to me that the ambulance could be a really interesting study, and, but at that point, you know, I'd never been in the ambulances, so by the time I started the project, I thought the, the initial uh, hook or the initial focus of the project was going to be on injury, it was going to be on trauma, I assumed the ambulances were doing a lot of, like, trauma work, and part of this was because I was misled by the sociological research on ambulances, and part of this was also because I was misled, and, and, and some of the descriptions that ambulance were provided by ambulance professions and things like that. Um, and so the project ended up shifting over time. When I was in inside the ambulance collecting data, I started to realize that ambulance crews, like what really characterized their work is that they are responding to an array of suffering bodies. They respond to suffering in the city um, in multiple ways. So they're not just responding to the most you know, severe of the severe cases. They're not responding to just gunshot calls or just cardiac arrest. They certainly are responding to those things, and that's an important part of their jobs. They're also responding to people who are just kind of, you know, drunk or intoxicated laying on the sidewalk. They're helping to connect a lot of people into the emergency department for kind of temporary shelter, um, they're involved in kind of the day-to-day governance of a a lot of unhoused populations and otherwise uh, vulnerable and suffering populations in the city. So I started to recast and and, and think of the ambulance as an institution that was part and parcel of a fragmented state for managing urban suffering. And I think I should probably clarify what I mean by urban suffering. I think this throws people off uh, a little bit. So in no way am I trying to suggest that people who, dwell in cities living in absolute or permanent misery. They don't. People who live in cities, I mean, there's a lot of sociological research. I'm thinking about like, some of the earlier writings by Claude Fisher and others. There's a lot of research that suggests that people who live in cities actually tend to be happier than those who do not live in cities. And you know, there's a public health scholarship that tells us that there's an urban health advantage. And I'm not denying any of these things. But all human settlements... Contain suffering, and we've long known that that suffering to concentrate at the bottom of the complex, urban violence. We've known this from writings of Frederick Engels, W. D. Du Bois, Jim Adams, Chicago School, and on And I'm particularly interested in how the state manages and governs suffering through an array of institutions. And by suffering, you know, I'm not just referring to physical suffering, even though this is like a case of medical sociology, so that's kind of about crime, but in the broader sense of urban suffering, I'm thinking about mental suffering, emotional suffering, uh, social suffering, or generally financial suffering, and, and things like that. And so the book tries to think about the ambulance as an institution for governing urban suffering, and I make the argument that the ambulance does this in three ways. First, the ambulance helps to bandage suffering bodies, so offers kind of simple and superficial solutions to deep complicated <laughs> structural problems. Ambulance crews are responding far downstream along a long, causal river that links macro structures to personal suffering. Ambient crews are just there basically offering up a series of bandage solutions to people's deeply complicated uh, structural suffering. And ambience crews are also helping to sort suffering bodies. So they're working with emergency department nurses and police officers on the streets, and they're helping to sort suffering bodies across an array. Of institutions. And then I also argue that the ambulance helps to hustle suffering bodies, so rush them through periods of intervention, not necessarily toward periods of intervention, but often rush them through interventions, often under the name of, or at least under the pressures of, organizational efficiency, profit, and whatnot. So that's why the book is titled the way it's titled, with Code Bandage, Sort, and Hustle, because it's detailing these three different mechanisms by which the ambulance helps to contribute to the governance of suffering populations and the economically and racially polarized city.
1: Sure, sure, yeah. Um, yeah, that, I was going to ask you to clarify what you mean by urban suffering. That's not what a term, a term we hear often in sociology, so thank you for that. So going back a little bit from the actual uh, theoretical and empirical content of the book, can you tell us a bit about your methods? Because you integrate a lot of analyses of your own experiences throughout the book, um, which is really insightful, and it's like a welcome addition, given your direct participation in your field site. So tell us about your methods and your experiences doing this research.
2: Sure, I draw on three sources of data for this book. so the first thing I did is a series of ride along observations. So for about a year, I spent you know many days and many nights just shadowing ambulance groups, hanging out with them, watching them as they worked and interacted and I just didn't, you know, ethnography is labor, you know, on its own terms. But as far as what I was doing in the field, I was just basically there to watch people work. I wasn't actually working there for the first year. And as an extension to this, I also had an opportunity to shadow uh, field supervisors. So these are like veteran paramedics. They drive around in these SUVs and, and patrol the 911 ambulance fleet. And then also as a, a ride-along, as a hang-around, I was able to attend a number of management meetings at this organization. So it gave me a great view from top to bottom of the management labor hierarchy at this firm. So I did that for a good year, and then in my second year of field work, I repositioned myself. I moved from just being a ride along to becoming a novice emergency medical technician. And so I was a paid employee at this same firm for nine months. There's about three months of training in advance for this. So it was about a a year additional field work so two years of field work overall basically cut in half with the first year where i was just kind of riding along with ambience crews and then my second year i was you know an emt and in that second year of field work i did a lot to you know as i say in the book kind of bend the ethnographic gaze back onto myself to make sense of my own shifting dispositions and subjectivities as i quote unquote became an emt and then the third source of data i draw on is uh over 100,000 medical records. So in the book, I describe these as being kind of like receipts of labor because these are medical documents and they're medical records that capture all the things you expect medical records to include, you know, patient demographics, patient history, and things like that. But they are receipts of labor because in the ambulance, these are documents completed by ambulance workers in the field after every single 911 call they have. And a lot of this is just responding to a series of closed-ended items on an electronic medical form but they always end uh, with, like, a. it varies, but they always end with an open-ended narrative that can be anywhere between, like, 200 to 1,000 words, in which paramedics and the interviews are uh, writing a, a written summary of the events that it, it unfolded. So I had these three sources of data, the right-long observations, my own time and reflections as an emergency medical technician, and then these uh, 100 or so thousand medical records. Yeah, yeah, that's
1: a lot of good data, like, quantitative data, but also qualitative data from your ethnography. Um, So can you tell us a bit about the basic structure and hierarchy of ambulance crews for people who aren't familiar with ambulances and how they work?
2: Yeah, so this varies a little bit across the country, but it's generally true that ambulances, particularly in private companies like the one I study, and in the 911 system, ambulances tend to be run by a paramedic and ENT team. And so the paramedics are the more trained of these parties. They're the ones that are you know, doing the relatively deep clinical interventions. They're the ones that are doing the intubations. They're the ones that are starting the IVs. And EMTs are there in many ways to assist and to augment the duties of the paramedic. And, you know, I think a lot of EMTs hate that description. And I, I, know I understand why they hate that description. So I think a lot of people uh, undermine the important work that they do when they suggest that they're just the assistants to paramedics. But it is generally true to suggest that when there's a paramedic and EMT team, the paramedic is the one that's really making all the major clinical decisions, and in many ways making all the major operational decisions, and EMTs are there to kind of assist them. This is, you know, I would say relatively new, well, maybe not relatively new, but it is something that is certainly not static in the history of, of ambulance operations, so The first ambulance ethnography, at least the first one that I know of, is by a sociologist named Dorothy Douglas, who wrote her doctoral dissertation while she was a PhD student in sociology at UC Davis. And she did an ethnography of ambulance crews in the late 1960s. And what she found was a different dynamic in terms of the hierarchy between ambulance crews and patients than what I saw. There were no paramedics. There were no EMTs. At that time, those titles just didn't exist at the time that she was writing. And what she found is this interesting hierarchy because the, the roles that were played in the back of an ambulance was there was a, an ambulance attendant and that was the person who did most of the patient care. And then there was an ambulance driver. That was like the official title. Today, the title of ambulance driver is considered condescending. It's considered rude and is uh, generally an offensive term to call anybody going to the ambulance, an ambulance driver. But at some point, that was an official title. And there was this division of labor in the ambulance where you had a driver and you had an attendant. And according to Douglas, the initial hierarchy was that the driver was kind of like the captain of the ship, the one that was doing the more honorable task in the ambulance. And that the attendant, the person who was in the back of the ambulance spending time with the patient while the driver was driving them, was doing the less honorable work of patient care. That is exactly the opposite of what I see today. You don't have attendants and drivers. we have EMTs and paramedics. But EMTs are the ones that are usually doing most of the driving. And paramedics are the ones that are doing most of the patient care. And paramedics, you know, they're the ones that are doing the more honorable work of patient care, the more important work. I think there's probably a number of reasons why that hierarchy has, has inversed over you know, the last several decades, I think much of it has to do with the professionalization of the craft of emergency medicine outside of the hospital and pre-hospital care, and the increasingly um, technical activities of providing care has made what was once just a simple kind of of, like, almost like a babysitting job, which is kind of sitting back there and hanging out with the patient, um, is now kind of deep, kind of clinical work is kind of becoming a form of what, you know, sometimes people we'll call it like being a ditch doctor or something like that. So there's this interesting hierarchy now that is different than it was in the past, where the paramedic has the more kind of honorable position, and EMTs are there to kind of assist the duties of paramedics.
1: Okay, yeah, and I, admittedly, I didn't know the, a real difference between what a paramedic was and what an EMT was because I hear the term EMT invokes so much more than the term paramedic. So I didn't know there was such a distinction there um, and the power difference between those two.
2: Yeah, and it, it's interesting because like it, part of it is the licensing and like how things are officially coded. So you know, EMTs, what we typically call EMTs, have the license of EMT B. I mean basic EMT, they're trained in basic life support skills. And then paramedics have a kind of license. It's usually you know uh, titled EMT slash P. So usually in which the you know, P stands for paramedic. But paramedics they have a larger scope uh, of practice and they're doing the more important clinical work or the more consequential clinical work. And you know like I said this is you have some ambulances in the United States that are run by dual paramedics. So it's a more kind of equal relationship. You'll have two paramedics that are working together. And I have observed a number of ambulance crews where it was like a dual paramedic rig. But those are pretty rare for the types of um, organizations I say like privatized ambulance operations. For one thing, when you have a paramedic, the labor power for a paramedic simply costs more than the labor power for EMT. So if you can, instead of having two paramedics, if you have a paramedic in the EMT that is cheaper for your labor costs as management. So there's kind of an obvious economic reason for why you see this often paramedic EMT duo.
1: Sure, sure. So going back to what you said before about how you make this argument that uh, ambulances have three. Uh, functions that they do in urban settings. So they bandage bodies, they sort bodies, and they hustle bodies. So can you first tell us about the initial steps of an ambulance call from the dispatch to crews classifying the call as what you title as either a bullshit call or a legit call?
2: Sure. Yeah. So there's lots of variation. It's always tricky to be like, here's the typical pattern of an ambulance call. But yeah, I can provide some kind of general patterns here. So what will usually happen is from the standpoint, at least from ambulance crews, is they will get dispatched a call. The county dispatcher will send them a call, and they're sending them a call. You know, they're sending calls to ambulances that are in the closest uh, vicinity to this, to wherever the call is generated from. And the dispatcher offers some initial triage of the call. So they, you know, it's not like all nine one one calls are treated the same. So they'll make a, a distinction if it's kind of they'll sometimes call it an alpha call or a bravo call or a charlie call. And a lot of this has to do with how the 911 caller is articulating the problem. You know, if they're saying, oh, my God, this person is not breathing, then they're going to classify this as a problem uh, that's going to be really severe than if somebody says they're calling L1 because they have a fever or something like that. So dispatchers are doing a little bit of this triage look. And, you know, one of the main things that this triage uh, does is determine if the ambulance is going to respond or if the ambulance crew is going to respond with lights and sirens or if they're going to just drive there. But for the most part, an overwhelming majority of calls, dispatch classifies as a category that should be responded to with lights and sirens. So most ambulance crews are responding with lights and sirens. Dispatchers send them kind of notes that tell them, you know, some general details uh, about the problem, at least as it was articulated by the caller. I realized very, very early on in this research that paramedics and EMTs treat most of those dispatch notes as, quote unquote, good guesses. And I understand why they do that now, because there's been a number of times when I was in the MT, I was riding along with Andrews Cruz, and which you get a call that said, you know, that somebody was unconscious, that they weren't breathing, uh, and that we arrive on scene and it was basically just somebody sleeping on the ground. I remember one time we got a call for somebody who was apparently struck by a car when we, uh, on, on the highway, and we rushed there, and when we got out of the, uh, the brig, we realized it was just somebody changing their tires. And so in this, I'm not trying to fault the dispatchers are working with the best information they have, but paramedics EMTs tend to treat those just as kind of good guesses. And they're really kind of determining the severity of most ambulance calls in terms of their own interactions they're having with patients. And paramedics and often told me that they're determining this, like, as soon as they arrive on scene. Right? If somebody calls 911 and they arrive on scene and that person is ambulatory, meaning that they're walking, if they're breathing, if they're talking in full sentences, it suggests that they're they're breathing and, and that they're in relatively stable condition, then they're not going to treat that case as severe as if they, you know, they roll up on scene and somebody is laying on the ground and they go and respond, you know, they tap on this person and they um, might pinch this person to offer some painful stimuli and the person's not and then they're gonna treat that as a more of a legitimate medical emergency. So they're determining kind of severity. On scene, in their own practical orientations of the world and their own direct interactions with their subjects, and I learned that ambulance crews have a kind of axes of preference, a series of kind of axes of preferences that they have that they use to make sense of uh, their clientele and clientele problems. Because as workers who work on suffering populations that kind of face an infinite wave of suffering people. There's just always somebody calling 911. It just never really ends. For it's just, they have to make sense of people's suffering as they enter the world. They have to determine the intensity of their suffering, the quality of their suffering, and in many ways they also have to determine the authenticity of their suffering. And there's a number of clues that they draw on to make sense of this. So, uh, the way in which I articulate in the book is I say that ambulance crews tend to see different kinds of people and then they also tend to see different kinds of cases. And so the kinds of people, well, there's, there's many distinctions here, but the ones that were really important uh, in my field work were race, gender, age, weight, and cleanliness. The last one referring to kind of physical levels of dirt that we present on somebody's body usually seen as a signal of one's housing status. And I was very convinced in my research that patients of color um, and people who fall elsewhere on these different axes and different kinds of people face an often steeper and, uh, and longer uphill battle to demonstrate the authenticity of suffering, of their own suffering, to ambulance crews. So I want to be really clear. In no way am I trying to suggest that there's not racial bias or gender bias or absolutely bias. that it matters a lot and it helps to determine how ambulance crews and other providers make sense of the authenticity of suffering of the people that they interact with. At the same time, much of my book emphasizes a different set of distinctions that in many ways intersect and interact with these distinctions and kinds of people. And I call these distinctions in kinds of cases. So if you talk to you know, a medical worker, you talk, ask them to tell you what different kinds of cases, they would probably make the distinction between, you know, Different problems as they present differently in different anatomical and physiological regions of the body. They'll say, okay, that's a cardiac case, or that's a, a respiratory case. But they might also make the distinction in the severity of cases that they see. And that's what ambulance crews do. They often make this distinction, like, of course, between like cardiac cases and respiratory cases and so on, and trauma cases. But they also make a distinction between how severe the cases. And this is a more informal kind of folk distinction that they use. And in the book, I I describe it, given the kind of dominant language that's used throughout the field that I studied, the distinction is between legit cases and bullshit cases. So the legit cases are the so-called real emergencies that necessitate and justify the fact of their medicine. These are the cases that have crews doing what they quote-unquote signed up to do. It has an intubating... Compressing lifeless chest, and doing all these deep kind of clinical interventions into the human body to salvage a body in crisis. And the bullshit calls are the so called non emergencies that involve little to no clinical intervention beyond a simple transport to a hospital. And the bullshit cases are particularly frustrating for ambulance crews. And I have a coding scheme that I use on the medical record. And I'm pretty confident this matched onto those the focus things I was hearing in the field. And I, part of my confidence went from me actually checking with paramedics and checking with uh, EMTs and others in the field to see if the coding scheme works. I found a coding scheme that I can pose onto my medical records um, because those medical records include, you know, details on the types of interventions they in the image group of part of the <laughs> And what I found was consistent with what I was seeing in my field work, and that is, most of these calls are closer to the bullshit end of the continuum. So most of them involve these so-called non-emergencies that don't involve much of the clinical intervention beyond the transport to the hospital. And that's incredibly frustrating for the ambulance crews. Um, and to be honest, I was a little bit surprised as a labor scholar because when I you know, started this research, I, I guess I wasn't entirely surprised that there was a distinction between the severity of cases. But what I was surprised is that how, how much ambulance crews wanted to work these so-called legit cases. Because from the outside, those don't seem as desirable. Those are the cases that are more physically exhausting. I mean, these are the cases that I have to have in up bodies. Um, I'm doing a lot of, like, cleanup afterwards. They're more mentally exhausting. They just require more critical thinking. Uh, they require more paperwork. And, of course, they're more emotionally exhausting in many ways. Because ambulance crews are, are 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 dealing with people in intense moments of suffering, or at least what they are interpreting to be really intense moments of suffering. And the bullshit calls, in some sense, can kind of seem easier. I mean, they are easier. They're not as physically exhausting, they're not as emotionally exhausting or as mentally exhausting. Yet ambulance crews, because they're committed to the craft, to the vocation of paramedicine, to the kind of crafted ambulance work, they overwhelmingly prefer these so called legit calls but most of the calls that they get uh are closer to the kind of this bullshit end of the continuum and so much of uh, of these workers express um frustrations with the kind of cases that they're that they're called upon to work
0: this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real pos you need shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Yeah, so in these bullshit cases where the ambulance crew can get really frustrated, um, how does that patient-crew interaction like, what does that look like, and how is that different? I mean, obviously, if someone's unconscious, the patient interaction will be different. But depending on if it's a bullshit or a legit case, does it does the patient interaction, the patient crew interaction, change?
2: Yes, I think it does. So the, there's a distinction I make in the in the book because um, I am trying to make sense of these interactions between providers and patients. And I notice, look, I think a lot of these interactions are really for a lot of people, probably pretty unremarkable. It's just like, kind of, you, you find somebody it tends to be not a very urgent case, you take them to the hospital, you don't really argue with them for the most part, you don't really, you know, find genuine moments of uh, camaraderie with them or a sense of independence with them. And so I think a lot of these cases, I should say, are pretty unremarkable. I don't think, you know, patients aren't always remembering their crews, and angioskers aren't always, certainly aren't always remembering their, their patients. But there were kind of Flash points and a significant number of these flash points of kind of, of, of passionate interactions between ambience groups and their patients. And some of these I, I coded as moments of struggle, and the others I inter- interpreted as, as moments of solidarity. So there were kind of, and, and by solidarity I mean this in a kind of typical kind of Durkheimian organic solidarity, sort of solidarity of interdependence. And this tended to happen. Uh, I wouldn't say it only happened on the legit calls. It could happen on the bullshit calls too, but it tended to happen on, on the legit calls. So it's just more common on the legit calls in which somebody has a legit medical emergency that is kind of matched with the skill set and the tools that paramedics and EMTs have. And those paramedics and EMTs have a, lo- a sense of vocation, a sense of purpose in, in helping those patients. And so there is this kind of solidarity of interdependence. Ambulance patients under these legit cases often need ambulance crews, in some cases to live. And ambulance crews need these patients with legit medical emergencies to realize a sense of purpose within their craft, within their vocation. And so solidarity wasn't, again, it wasn't limited to the legit calls, but it tended to happen more frequently on on those legit calls. Whereas for the bullshit calls... I, it was more common to see moments of struggle between ambulance crews and patients, and you know sometimes this was physical struggles and spitting and kicking and things like that. But for the most part, it was it was verbal struggles, and it was one in which ambulance crews, you know, would often accuse their patients of wasting their time. You know, this is an inappropriate use of ambulance, so they give patients a hard time for that. And then patients would often respond in a verbal struggle, in this way by usually suggesting, I think, for a very good reason. That ambulance crews don't care about them, their problems, or are not taking them seriously. So there are certainly moments of, of conflict and, and in struggle between the ambulance crews and patients, and those moments of struggle tended to happen more in these so-called uh, bullshit calls. But we're certainly not limited to them. We certainly saw moments of struggle on the legit calls, and you certainly saw moments of solidarity on uh, the bullshit calls, but it tended to be patterned in the way I just suggested.
1: Sure, sure. Yeah, we talk about um, how ambulance crews uh, distinguish between these cases and between the type of patients. Uh, and the second part of the book, you talk about sorting bodies. So, in the same way as categorizing, uh, what does sorting bodies refer to and what institutions are involved in the sorting of bodies?
2: Yeah, so in the second part of the book, I should say, you know, one of my key um, theoretical inspirations here is Marx and his writings on the labor process. And when you write about labor process, or if you take a labor-centric approach to studying an institution like this, one of the things you're going to want to account for is the horizontal relationships between workers. And, you know, typically when when people are doing labor process type studies and they're studying um, firms and things like that, they're accounting for the horizontal relationships between workers within the same organization. And... For me, you know, this means it counts for the relationships between EMTs and paramedics, even though there is a kind of vertical distinction we were talking about a bit earlier. they kind of, you know, they're more comrades than they are, um, uh, you know, separated vertically from one another. But when you're talking about ambulances and you're talking about the horizontal relationships that they have with other frontline workers, this means you have to account for the relationships that they have with the emergency department nurses at the hospitals that they're taking their patients to. And it also means having... They account for the relationships between ambulance workers and the police officers that they're interacting with, not on all of their calls, but on a significant number of them, I, I estimate in my in my research that about a fifth of ambulance calls involve interactions with the police. So they're working with these other frontline workers, and and trying to make sense of this kind of division of labor on the front lines between nurses and. and Ambulance crews, and ambulance crews, and the police, and there are certainly other actors at play here too, including firefighters, private security officers, and so on. But I really focus mostly on the relationships between ambulance crews and nurses, and ambulance crews and the police. And I'm trying to make, you know, in trying to make sense of uh, what it is that these workers, through their interactions, accomplish. I argue that much of what they're doing is helping to sort bodies and so ambulance crews are you know they're determining people's um, problems and they're categorizing and classifying people's suffering and then they are trying to uh then determine how to sort them into the ambulance they have to you know impose a primary impression they have to suggest that this is a case of x you know it's a case of shortness of breath or it's a case of uh, generalized body pain or something they have to classify. They're forced to do this. They're forced to check a box. They have to decide kind of which hospital they want to take their patients to. And they interact with nurses who are often frustrated with the types of patients that they're bringing them. So there's this weird kind of tension between ambulance workers and nurses over how they're going to sort patients, um, which hospitals are going to take patients to, which, uh, you know, and, and, and how are they going to be sorted or classified into the hospital. And then ambulance crews are also doing this sorting um, and this labor of sorting with police officers on the streets, um, in which case, you know, most of these interactions between ambulance crews and police, they, they happen most, they're more likely to happen on these so-called bullshit calls, on these low priority calls, which I was surprised to learn in my fieldwork. You know, I'd ambulance crews and police to interact, but I thought, yeah, gonna, you know, come together on gunshot calls and on severe traffic accidents, and they do come into contact on those, on those events, but they're just more likely to interact with these so-called bullshit calls, and it's mostly for kind of clearing spaces of um, bodies that are usually seen or deemed by the police to be undesirable or out of place in that area, and they need to leave. So, you know, police are often writing involuntary psychiatric calls that are forcing ambulance crews to take patients um, psychiatric units and um, another common moment of, kind of struggle between these these groups is over what to do with a drunk person um, you know, it's not uncommon for the police to kind of come across a drunk person on the on the streets or on the sidewalk or a bush or something like that and they'll sometimes summon an ambulance crew to take them to the hospital and you know the, the tension between the ambulance crews and the police has a real kind of material consequence for the people that are being sorted. Because the distinction is also, you know, how are these populations going to be sorted? Are they going to be sorted into the hospital and kind of classified their problems and their suffering classified as sick? Are they going to perhaps be sorted into the alternative of the jail and have their problems classified as, as criminal? When you see somebody who's drunk on the streets, you could certainly frame it in either way, right? Say it's a medical problem, the person who's drunk, they're sick, they should go to the hospital for night. Or it's a problem of uh, public disorder. They are um, breaking the law because they're publicly incorporated. So they could be sorted into the jail. Or they could just be abandoned altogether, which is an option that sometimes happens. That so basically the police and "Name is kind of leave the person alone. But that route is um, really rare. It's, it just doesn't really happen that much. So the sorting of bodies, I argue... If you really want to understand how ambulance crews are helping to sort bodies into hospitals and how ambulance crews and police interactions are in some sense kind of determining how bodies are sorted in hospitals or perhaps even into uh, a jail, I argue you have to account for the horizontal relations between workers. It is true that much of this is determined by protocols, things like Mtala, other regulations of... How emergency departments take in patients and regulations about how union crews have to take people who are on psychiatric calls and the police mandate that they do so. Certainly, protocols policies are really important here. But workers on the ground have a significant amount of discretion in determining how to interpret these protocols and policies. And so you have to account for the interests of workers on the ground as they struggle with one another to determine this sorting process. So for example, Ambulance crews, they have to take patients to the hospital if the patient says take them to the hospital. They don't have a choice. They just have to take them to the hospital. But ambulance crews do have some choice into which hospitals they take their patients to. And that's actually not very visible in the actual written protocols and procedures themselves. Because the written protocols and procedures say, you know, what you do is you just take the patient to the closest, most appropriate hospital. or if the patient uh, has a non-severe problem, a kind of bullshit problem, of course, this is not exactly what you used in the protocol, but this is essentially what it says, is that if it's a non-urgent kind of bullshit problem, then there's another factor at play here, and that's patient choice. So patients can kind of choose and elect which hospitals they want to go to within reason. And I found in my field work that ambulance crews would often try to exploit this patient choice um, within the field to try to steer patients into selecting hospitals that they believe would somehow make their shift easier. So they might try to convince patients to choose hospitals that are, you know, in a less busy part of the county, assuming that after they completed that call that they won't be in in, in such a busy area uh, immediately outside that hospital. Or during the 11th hour of their shift and they're like about to uh, end the shift for the night, they'll often try to get patients to select hospitals that are near their designated sign-out locations so that this would minimize the likelihood that they would be forced to work overtime. we we'll see similar things happening between the struggles between ambulance workers and uh, so the police. So the sorting of bodies really is an account of the, of the horizontal relations between these different frontline workers and how populations are sorted within and across these institutions.
1: Mm-hmm. In this section, you also discussed the idea of fixing up bodies and making people into patients. So what do you mean by that?
2: Yeah, so that's the division of labor between ambulance crews and, and nurses at the hospital. Uh, the flip side of this is that uh, there's this, this idea of cleaning bodies, uh, which I talk about in uh, the chapter between ambulance crews and the police. This idea of fixing up bodies is on the chapter between ambulance crews and nurses. And so I argue that ambulance crews, I mean, they have to take people to the hospital. And one of the things they have to do, you can't just pick somebody up if you're an EMT or a paramedic, you can't just pick somebody up on the street and then just drive them to the, ho- to the hospital and then just you know, present them to the nurse and then leave. You have to do a significant amount of labor, even if it's the so-called bullshit cult, you have to do the labor of making this subject legible to the institution of medicine. In short, you have to make them into a patient. You have to, you know, Reduce their suffering, classify their suffering into one, uh, one maybe two um, easily checkable boxes. Uh, you, have, I mean, you can't even file your paperwork as an ET or a paramedic at the, a, at the end of the call without checking a box that says, oh, this person's problem is shortness of breath or this, this person's problem is chest pain or something like that. As so you have to make them into patients, and part of this means recording their vital signs. You have to use kind of socodian medical gaze to try to objectively quote, unquote, objectively determine the, the state of, of one's suffering existence. And then when you get to the hospital, you have essentially fixed up a patient for the nurse, and then you provide the nurse, that patient, with some documentation about why it is that they have been fixed up in the way that they've been fixed up. Why have they been classified into the patient that they've been classified? So this is true whether it's the bullshit calls or the legit calls, because even if it's the so-called bullshit calls and are not medical emergencies, there's still significant labor that ambulance crews are doing, and it still is important medical labor that they're doing because they're helping to make these bodies legible to the institution of emergency medicine so that they can kind of be pushed further into the administrative machinery of the hospital.
1: Yeah, I thought this was one of the most interesting parts of the book, given how the ambulance crew uses like rhetorical tools, but also like their training as um, EMTs, like you said, the the blood pressure and the vital signs to to really make an argument. Okay, this is a patient because, um, like you said, to make it more legible to nurses. And then in the last part of the book, you talk about the labor of ambulance crews sort of going off of this labor of making it to patients. And you also talk about the hierarchy of crew members. So what were some of the pressures faced by ambulance crews in terms of their labor conditions and their performance pressure?
2: Yeah, so, you know, one of the things I did in this research is I wanted to understand the vertical pressures of production. So as I said, the sorting of bodies, that was an effort to make sense of the lateral, the horizontal struggles that ambulance crews or having other frontline workers, nurses in hospitals and business states, not even necessarily struggle with the moments of solidarity and camarader- camaraderie they might have with these groups too. And in the third part of the book, this idea of hustling bodies, I was attempting for the vertical relations. And in particular the relations between ambulance workers and those who are attempting to control and coordinate their labor from above. And for my case it was really a tricky thing to figure out because I study a private, for-profit ambulance company that holds 911 contracts throughout the country, and I focus on its operations in one California county. And the way that this relationship works is that the, the county or the public bureaucracy that's essentially in charge of assuring the delivery of ambulances to citizens in the county delegates these operations, contracts these operations out to this private firm. The contract and delegate out to capital. But this is not you know, a simple story of the hollowing out of the state. Uh, I thought it would be, when you think about these contract relationships, the state remains present and powerful in this relationship. And this became really obvious to me once I started to attend management meetings, upper level management meetings that were also attended by middle managers and, and field supervisors. And it was in these meetings that I learned of a central dilemma that ambience groups fix. And the dilemma is let me see if I can pull it up real quick to make sure I capture it. So the dilemma is this. So if the firm, if, if this company I study aids the poor, they will continuously waste resources on a mostly unprofitable clientele. But if the firm abandons the poor, the county bureaucracy will fine them for violating protocols. So I should clarify this a little bit. So over half of this company's, um, well, most of the, I should say, ambulances in the United States, they tend to generate revenue on a fee-for-service revenue model. Now, this is true for private companies like the one I study or even public ambulance operations like those run by fire departments. They tend to run on a fee-for-service model. You probably shouldn't. All this fee for service, We should probably call it debt for service, because fees aren't really collected inside the ambulance, but the debt is free. So you kind of, you know, accept the debt once you use the service. And most of that debt is paid by public or private insurance providers. And for the company I study, this is pretty consistent with what we know about ambulance patients throughout the country, over half of its patients are either uninsured or on means-tested Medicaid. It's 51% of their patients in this case. And from the standpoint of management, people who are uninsured often don't pay their bills. And Medicaid or Medi-Cal in the state of California only covers a fraction of ambulance transport—somewhere around like two to three hundred dollars of like uh, you know, what they would like to get a two to three thousand dollar transport invoice. So the money for this company is really in like the hills and in the wealthier pockets of the suburbs, where people are more likely to have private insurance. But those are the places that are just simply not calling or summoning the ambulance. Very much. The ambulance just gravitates towards poor and otherwise marginalized neighborhoods in the city. And those are places where people are just not generating a lot of money for the company. But they can't just abandon this population. They have to service this population because the county bureaucracy that is delegating activities out to this private company will find this company if they're late to the 911 calls or if they're absent certain neighborhoods. So I became really interested in how does this company respond to this dilemma? And the truth is that they respond in a number of ways. And one of the things they do is they, um, you know, lobby with the state government, trying to increase uh, Medi-Cal or Medicaid reimbursement. Sometimes they lobby with the county government, trying to adjust this fine schedule and how much they're going to get fined for each call. But their quintessential strategy here, their primary strategy is just a capitalistic, a classic capitalistic one is to intensify the exploitation of crews. To try to increase the amount of surplus that management can appropriate from its orbit. In other words, to try to increase this transport to crew ratio. They just want ambulance crews rushing through as many billable transports as they possibly can. Now they realize that many of those billable transports will not be very profitable for them, at least when you think about them as a single unit, as a single transaction. But the idea is if you can just churn through a lot of these calls in your organization, and then on top of that, capture you know some of these calls in the wealthier parts of the area where people have insurance or more likely to pay their bill, then you can start to generate a profit. So I became really interested in how management was trying to increase this transport to career ratio to try to basically intensify exploitation. And there's a number of ways that they do this. I mean, one of the things they do is they adjust the the schedule. I mean, they are literally changing the schedule every couple of days, trying to add and and subtract um, the number of ambulances that are available on the streets as the shifting 911 demand changes or rather the predictions for the uh, 911 demands change. One of the things that this company did when they took over this company contract is they eliminated ambulance stations. And this is increasingly true for private ambulance firms across the country that we're on these nine hundred and one contracts at least, that ambulance stations are disappearing. And uh, what happens is an ambulance crew checks in for their 12-hour shift, and then you know, they check in at headquarters where they get their ambulance, and then they're just told to go run calls. And when they're in between one calls, they do not return to an ambulance station. Instead, they're told to post at particular street intersections and wait for their next call. This produces incredible flexibility from the standpoint of management because now they don't have to have ambulance crews waiting at, like, static ambulance stations that don't move within the county. Now they can actually, you know, move the availability of ambulance crews throughout the streets as the 911 demand shifts. While it produces incredible flexibility for managers, it produces incredible exhaustion for ambulance crews. Um, Another thing that they try to do is they really want to reduce the amount of time that ambulance crews are spending at hospitals. So when ambulance crews take a patient to the hospital, um, the assumption that management has is that ambulance crews is kind of milking their times at these hospitals. They're spending a bit more time there than perhaps they need to spend. Uh you know, I can say as an EMT that worked at this company, but that assumption that ambulance crews are kind of milking their times at hospitals is absolutely true, uh, kind of unapologetically true, because we worked 12 to 14-hour shifts. We ran a ton of vocationally unfulfilling calls, or at least what most people would consider to be vocationally unfulfilling. And in between 911 calls, we weren't returning to ambulance stations. I, as an EMT and many of my coworkers, very rarely received meal breaks. So, yeah, we were milking our time a little bit at the hospital to, you know, kind of carve the hospital into being kind of an informal break room. And so I argue that all of these pressures that management puts on to workers in an effort to increase this transport to per ratio, have creates runs through many global cases, to have image cruise, you know, Quickly exit the hospital and return to 911 service so they can capture a new call. All of these pressures that increase this transfer crew ratio and intensify the expectation of workers, I argue that this amounts to a hustling of bodies. The ambulance crews are uh, you know, rushing people through periods of intervention, often in the name of or under the pressures of organizational efficiency, and in this case, in the name of profit. Now, this isn't to suggest that ambulances are rushing people toward interventions. I still think it's fair to say, and I don't think that my research is contradicting this in any way, that ambulance patients wait a long time to call 911 and wait a significant amount of time. And especially once they get to the hospital, they have to wait a long time until they get to bed. And the ambulance patients are often waiting like 30, 40, 50 minutes for a bed. So there's a lot of waiting. But from the standpoint of ambulance workers, and from the standpoint of, of labor more generally, while there is a lot of waiting, it is this, this waiting is interrupted by flash points of interventions in which crews are rushing people, hustling for, hustling people through certain periods of intervention. And I argue that this is motivated largely by these vertical structures, by these vertical relationships between ambulance workers and managers. Because managers want ambulance crews to. To increase this transport ratio, this largely amounts to efforts to try to hustle people through interventions so that crews can hustle through bodies and move on to new um, move on to new patients. And so, when you take a patient to the hospital. You kind of want to rush them through the, the process. You want to get them onto the hospital bed as soon as possible, so that you can maybe carve out ten to fifteen minutes of a kind of informal break before managers start to come yell yeah, at you, mainly the middle managers. Uh, popping into the hospital to yell at you to ask you to return to the service, so all of this really kind of motivates a hustling of bodies. In addition to this damaging sort of, bodies of mm-hmm.
1: yeah, I thought this chapter really tied up the book nicely because it's it moves from okay, this is what we see when we first get to the patient, and then this is what happens when we classify the patient, and then finally what happens sort of in between patients or after patients. Um, so I thought this really. Uh, tied up the book nicely in terms of really helping reader to understand the process of uh, coming to a patient and then delivering the patient to the next institution that will then handle them and sort them through the system. Um, So we've taken up a lot of your time. So I'm going to ask the final question that we always ask on the new books network. And that is, what are you working on now?
2: Oh yeah, that's a, that's a tough question. I so as of right now, I'm just kind of finishing up some loose ends from this project. I mean, there were some things in the in the book, some things I wanted to to say that I just didn't really felt like they just didn't really fit the argument of of the book, or they didn't really help advance the specific claims I wanted to make there. So I have a lot kind of on the cutting board. It's going to occupy me for the next year or so in, in writing about ambulances, including writing about the particular methodology that I took. Um, I'm still doing research on punishment and incarceration. I have a couple of papers that have uh, uh, one is forthcoming, a co-authored publication thinking about parole as an institution for governing uh, poverty. That should be coming out soon. I'm also working on a a methods piece on collecting data uh, behind bars. And then I'm just trying to think about new field sites to kind of take this labor-centric approach that I have and this book Bandit for and hustle into new settings. And, um, you know, I I don't have anywhere to report that I'm at right now, but hopefully within the next year I'm in the field collecting data again because I'm certainly feeling the itch to return to to field work. As much as I love being a professor and teaching my classes, I'm very eager to get back into doing um, some more on-the-ground ethnography for understanding the governance of, of urban suffering more generally.
1: Yeah, that's exciting, Um, especially coming up with a new project. You can sort of go so many different ways with this going forward. Um, So, Josh, where can listeners find you online to learn more about your work and your book?
2: Sure. Uh, Let's see. So I have a Twitter. It's just at Josh Sign, so J-O-S-H-S-E-I-M. I'm relatively new to Twitter. I've had it for, for less than a year, but people can reach uh, reach me there. I have they have my DMs are open. Um, in terms of other online presence, I mean, I just have my, you know, my standard faculty profile that includes my CV, links to my book, um, and other descriptions of, of, of the book. And I think I'm also going to compile, um, you know, Podcasts like this and, 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 and things like that on, on probably on my faculty profile, but yeah, I'm, I'm available on Twitter and certainly always up to talking to uh, you know anybody about this research if they find it interesting, anybody about the book.
1: Great. So again, this has been an interview with Dr. Josh Syme, author of Bandage, Sword, and Hustle: Ambulance Crews on the Front Lines of Urban Suffering. Josh, I want to thank you again for being on the show today, and I really enjoyed chatting with you.
2: Thank you so much, and have a lot of fun.